You are listening to Seniors Junction Podcast. We're working to prevent seniors isolation one conversation at a time. Your hosts today, Namrata Bayaria and myself, Paul Merkley, we are the co-founders of Seniors Junction. Our very special guest today is Ruta Pai. She is the Engagement Director of Providence House Senior Living in Massachusetts. Welcome very much. Welcome, Ruta. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul, for the introduction. It's really great to meet you, Namrata and Paul. Um, and thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. Um, so as, you know, Paul told you a little bit about me, um, my name is Ruta Pai. I'm the Engagement Director at Providence House Assisted Living. Um, I'm also a registered dance movement therapist with the American Association of Dance Therapy. Um, and I'm also a mental health clinician um, at my current workplace. So I, I sort of wear many hats, <laughs> which I definitely enjoy um, because I think um, the reason that I chose to go into this a bit of an unconventional, as most would say, a profession is dance movement therapy. Um, but I feel like, um, so I grew up in India and I felt that not everybody has um, the vocabulary to express themselves. Um, and if you see a lot of Indians, and I'm not trying to be stereotypical here, but we do use a lot of gestures, and you will see me using a lot of gestures. Well, me too. Paul, Paul likes it. He's like, <laughs> you guys are like the closest <laughs> to Italians as it gets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, but I think that's, you know, where I realized that a lot of people do use a lot of gestures in expressing themselves. Um, and I have, you know, always danced since um, I was five. And that was my way of expressing myself. I express myself through dance. I express myself through movement. Um, and I think during my undergraduate studies, I stumbled on this workshop on dance movement therapy. Um, and I was also studying psychology at that time. And I was like, wow, this is the perfect marriage of dance and psychology. Um, so I explored that a little bit more. And I do strongly believe in the healing power of movement or any art for that matter. Um, I do believe that there's power in art therapy. I do believe there's a power of healing in music, in drama, um, in dance. Um, so I decided to pursue that um, and I'm grateful that I get to bring that into my current workplace and do dance movement therapy based groups, um, you know, with my seniors at the assisted living. Yeah, that's amazing. By the way, Paul, side note, we, we trained at the same places, but in different geographies, okay. which I did. She went to Shamak Davar and she did Sandeep So Parker, which is the salsa. So, so when I spoke to her, I was like, wow, yeah. we have so much in common. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wonderful. Very yeah. relatable. Yeah. 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 To, to an outsider, the uh, precision and nuance of Indian dance is astonishing. Yeah. To an outsider. Yeah. 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 It is because there's nothing called Indian per se, right? It's all regional and cultural. So, so it's so much of, um, it's so much of variety. And then of course, what's popular is the TV Bollywood dancing. That's totally different. Like it's, 
I mean, it's not belonging to one kind, right? It's so, so yeah, it's, there's a lot of stereotype there, but yeah, sometimes it's true. Like most Indians, we are like, even if they're not dancers, you put on music, they will bop along. Like it's, yeah. it's especially if you see Indian weddings, they are like those DJ parties, they happen. <laughs> so most people, even they don't dance, they will dance there. <laughs> and I think you bring a really good point, Namrata, because I think, um, dance is such an integral part of the Indian culture Um, and it's I mean you will see all these beautiful different forms of dancing and communal dancing I mean a lot of regional and cultural festivals have their like own folk dancing where the community as a whole comes together and you know enjoys the festivities as a group Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that I really, you know, I'm proud of as, you know, it is a part of my culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's also something that probably, you know, helps me to use dance as a way to express myself because it's so deeply rooted in the culture and yeah. it just comes so naturally to people. Um, yeah. And if, I think it also gives a lot of people a sense of belonging um you know a sense of belonging to a community being a part of a community um so i think it's it's there's like so many social benefits to mm-hmm. dancing as well. well it's almost like the choir that we you know when we interview seniors who grew up on the farm they all either went to the choir or play an instrument it's yeah. similar to that kind of a uh cultural thing it's a thing it's a thing like we also have a like the god of dance, Shiva, like, you know, yeah. so we also have it sanctified as a holy thing, right? So it's, it's, a, it's not something, it's intrinsic. It's nothing extrinsic about it. It's intrinsic. And it's like, so for me, I, I don't know, I, you'll barely find people who don't dance. Like you barely, like, I'm not saying the stellar dance performers. And then some of them will tell you, okay, give me two glasses of, you know, some kind of a liquid and I'll be ready to dance two pegs. So that's also another kind of, a, I'm not endorsing it, but some people say that, uh, but it's, it's a thing. So, it's, so, so when you do, we will get to the solutions, but when you do some programming in India around seniors, it's very easy to get them to dance or do kind of a movement, like, because yoga is also there, right? So no, like, so yoga also emphasizes our movement and dance is nothing but with music and synchronized version of it, I would say. <laughs> Not as, as, as flexible, but a little more. Um, anyway, so coming back to the topic, we digress so much <laughs> on the first question. Um, since you uh, wear different hats, Ruta, you must have come across social isolation and even physical isolation in seniors. So can you tell us in the past two years, what has been your experience with isolation? Um, so I... I did get to experience it very closely. Um, I can say that because I started this job at the peak of COVID. Um, and I was terrified. Everybody else was terrified. We don't know what it was. Um, we were literally wearing trash bags because nobody had any PPE really. So we were literally wearing trash bags and going around and you know doing things for our seniors. Everybody was sort of um, forced to isolate. I, I mean, I refer to that as forced isolation um, because we couldn't 
really have residents come together for meals, their regular routines or come out for activities. Everybody was forced to stay inside their apartments, of course, because of, you know, for their own safety, but that definitely took a great, great, great toll on their mental health as well as their physical health. Um, because we had a lot of seniors who were regular at our exercise classes. Um, that was their routine that, you know, helped them to stay healthy. They couldn't do that anymore. A lot of people relied on that social interaction, uh, you know, when they would come out for meals, for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, and they couldn't do that anymore. Um, so a very precious part of their routine was just suddenly taken away from them. And that is, you know, that brings up so much grief too. Um, that brings up so much disconnection, um, not just from your friends, but also from your families. Um, our entire community was just so socially disconnected. And I think a lot of us um, were also at loss of what, what do we do? How should we do this? How should we engage everybody? And it did take us a little bit of time to come up with some creative ideas, but it was, it was just so much because um, to give you an example, we had one resident who underwent a chemo treatment in that period of COVID. And when she returned from her treatment, she had to isolate because we couldn't let her out of the apartment. We couldn't let anybody out of their apartment for their own safety. And if I were to just put myself in her shoes and if we were all to put ourselves in her shoes and having gone through such an intense treatment that takes so much toll on your physical and mental health and then having to isolate yourself without any support, without being able to you know, see your family, your friends, that's, that's a lot. Um, and it, I think there are so many more residents um, a couple of our residents lost their spouses to COVID and they had to stay by themselves. There was no support. There was nobody to comfort them. There was nobody to talk to because you couldn't really come out of your apartment. Um, so I think it was, it was painful for me to, you know, see that happen in the community. Um, and there was like a sense of, I should say, shared isolation as well because I feel like all of them were sort of going through the same isolation at the same time. So I like to call it like a collective isolation in a way. Um, and it was just painful to see that happen. Um, and I feel like um, even before COVID, I should say that senior isolation has been, a, you know, one of the concerning issues with this population for sure um, because I feel like when that transition happens um, from moving out of your home to a senior living that in itself is a very important and sensitive transition period for a lot of seniors and I don't think that the society or the system um, emphasizes how important that transition period is. Um, and I feel
feel like a lot of the times what happens is they're sort of picked up from their own home where they've lived for so many years, where they have had so many memories and sort of dumping them into this community. Um, and I have also seen so many residents, a lot of the new residents who, you know, move into our communities sort of struggle with adjusting. Um, and I don't think there is, you know, sort of a designated position in senior living communities for checking in. Um, and I, and I think just because of my background in psychology and mental health, I just sort of took that on myself. Um, and that's sort of become a routine where we, when somebody new comes into our community, I have what we call a buddy system. So I sort of get to know their interests, their hobbies, and then try to find a buddy for them from the community who sort of helps them with this transition. So they don't feel like they're by themselves. Um, a lot of the time our residents are introverts, you know, and have a hard time reaching out or hard time initiating that social connection and in turn end up feeling very, very lonely and very, very isolated. Um, so this buddy system that I came up with, it really helps residents to sort of, you know, um, be friends with somebody who may have similar interests. And it's always easier for anyone, I mean, irrespective of the age, to connect with somebody who we have something in common with. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, I try to sort of, you know, try to um, come up with ideas as to make this transition easier for them. So when they move into this community, they don't feel like, I don't know what, I don't know what's going on because it's, it's new and it's a change and change is hard. Um, and I don't think uh, a lot of, the times we emphasize on this enough. I think it's that first couple of weeks or even a month that it's so important for us to just check in with the residents or um, see what they need, see how they're doing here, if they're happy, if they're having difficulties adjusting. I feel like that transition period in itself is so, so important. Um, so yeah, and I mean, even after that, I mean, in. COVID actually, um, something that I came up with because I just couldn't, I mean, I was, I mean, I could feel that. I mean, I'm, I'm such a, like, I'm a, I'm very much of an empath, um, uh, because being a mental health clinician, that sort of like drilled into you. Uh, so I couldn't help but put myself in their shoes and sort of see that if I was, if I were to be in a community or in a communal living, and I had my routine of going for activities, seeing my friends every day, um, going for exercises, and that was suddenly taken away from me. How would I feel? How isolated would I feel? How depressed I would feel? Um, so we started um, sort of like hallway games. So we had some small hallways in our community. So we started doing bowling. And so residents would just like stay in their apartments with their door open and watch people bowl and we would like arrange all the pins on the other end of the hallway have somebody come out one at a time and do bowling we did hallway bingo um we did hallway exercises you know just to find creative ways to keep them engaged and to be able to see somebody else's face even um because i think um we have this 
magical thing that I, you know, I, I'm always really interested in is mirror neurons. And that is something that, you know, when you see somebody's face, you see their emotions, you in turn sort of feel those emotions. And that was my way of, you know, helping our residents sort of feel that connection with others and also with themselves by just being able to see others um, mm -hmm. in those difficult times or being able to feel that I do have somebody right next door to me and I can see them or I can hear them, even though I can, you know, physically spend time with them. I am a part of a community and that I'm not alone. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was a, it was a difficult time, uh, but it also sort of forced us to um, be more creative um, and to see how we can do different things to make sure that our residents are not feeling depressed or not feeling like, um, you know, not feeling very lonely. Um, so it was a, it was a challenging time, but we, we got through it. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're, I think you're a tremendous asset to the field. Um, Thank you. some of the things you say remind me of our podcast with that thanatologist that we had, Karen Omond. Uh, so actually leaving their house in the first place is a loss because one supposes that they were familiar with the neighborhood and probably had acquaintances who said hi to them. So we take away those social connections, plunk them in a new place. Um, and at, at which point our company says, well, we should be, we should be, we have a little diagnostic we give people to to measure how much they've lost from where they were to where they are, and then how much socialization they would like to have. So I think it's great. Uh, you've, you've answered in large measure this next question, but I'll just ask if you want to add anything uh, about your vision for tackling the problem of social isolation in seniors. Um, so post-COVID, I'd say what's happened um, is that we have this term in psychology um, sort of learned helplessness, um, you know. Um, so I feel like a lot of our residents, because they were forced to isolate for almost over a year, I think they have just found a bit of a comfort staying inside their apartments. And that's making it so much more difficult for a lot of activity professionals, including myself, to get them out of their apartments. Because now, you know, we're all vaccinated, we've all received the booster, and the risks are very, very low. And we have all our activities, um, you know, back to normal. Um, but the residents will always, you know, come to you um, and say, oh, there's nothing going on. I didn't, I didn't even notice that this was going on because I think they've just, they've, they're just so used to, oh, there's nothing going on. So let's just stay in our apartment. There is nothing going on. Let's just stay in our apartments. So that, I think they, I think what I call is learned helplessness. So I think they're so used to that isolation that even now, when we're no longer required to stay indoors, it's really challenging for them to come out of their apartments and engage. Um, and I think that's 
probably, I would say, one of the things that I am definitely struggling with. Um, and for, I think, my vision to improve this um, isolation that, you know, that they're habitual to now is to just be persistent. Um, I mean, I literally go around, knock on every single resident's door and let them know that oh, we have so-and-so entertainment happening at 2.30 this morning. Would you like to come? And sometimes, because they're so used to isolating themselves, they just don't even, um, you know, look at the schedules. Because in their heads, they still have that habit that, oh, nothing's going on, you know, after meals we stay indoors after breakfast we stay indoors so I really try to go around and make sure to get them out of their apartments and show them that we have so many things going on and after they do come for entertainment or we sometimes have happy hours so they do come for happy hours they you know get to have that nice social interaction um, and after that, they will come to me and they'll say, well, thank you for letting me know. I had such a great time. Um, so I think it's just about trying really hard to let them know that you matter um, and that, you know, we are here um, to help you get out of that isolation. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of the residents are still struggling with that. It's about being... Mm -hmm learned helplessness thank you learned helplessness yeah i think it's and i think it's something that they probably are not even aware of because it just happens so unconsciously that it's us as activity professionals or mental health clinicians who have to sort of reach out um because after covid um i realized that we just needed to start um, something um, that's going to give people hope. Um, so I started um, Gratitude Circle, which is based more on like the positive psychology realm. Um, and in the Gratitude Circle, as we started building more and more trust, I realized that a lot of people who were coming to the group were dealing with so much grief and loss. Um, a lot of the residents lost their um, children, a lot of them lost their spouses, their close friends, um, their relatives who they were close to, and they never got to see them. They never got to go for the funerals even. And that was a lot. And they were holding on to it for so long until we created this safe space where they felt um, safe enough to open up about it. Um, and that was the point where I just created a grief support group because I realized that even in the group, when one person would open up about their grief and loss, it encouraged somebody else to open up about their grief and loss. And that was another way of connecting, you know, and another way of feeling that you're not alone in this or I'm not alone in this. I have somebody else who's going through or, um, you know, is in the same boat as myself. Um, 
And some people would even share stories about how they got over their grief and loss. We had some residents who opened up about, you know, how hard it was for them when they lost their spouses years ago and how they process that grief and how they overcome some of the challenges. And that, that just created such a beautiful space for people to come in, to share, to connect, to be, to feel seen, to feel heard and to feel supported. Um, and that was also one of the ways um, and one of my regions of, you know, helping people feel more connected um, mm -hmm. because a lot of the, I mean, after COVID, because of a lot of challenges that a lot of residents went through, the level of depression and anxiety in many of our residents went through the roof. And it was very important for them to know that they're not alone in this that there are other people and that was just and i think that's my vision is to understand the needs and the individual needs of you know seniors and what they need and and just finding a community or finding a group where they feel that you know i'm a part of a group and i'm not alone because a lot of the times when i spoke one-on-one -on -one to a lot of residents who were going through depression post-covid they felt like they were the only ones. They felt like, oh, I'm the only one who's going through this. I'm sad all the time. What are other people going to think about me? And by having that sort of a self-talk, they were just isolating themselves because they didn't even know that there was probably few other people who are going through the same challenges as they are. So mm -hmm. I think it's about finding different ways for them to connect. Some people, you know, um, may just want to connect for fun um, and a best way of connecting for them or helping them get over that isolation would be to finding um, somebody who has common interests with them. For some people, it's with grief and sharing that grief with somebody is how they connect and how they feel less isolated. So I think it's, it's such a... Um, multi-factor and multi-faceted um thing yes. um and i think there are so many different ways to do that i think my vision and how i see it is because i am very person-centered my approach is very person-centered because i feel like what may work for one senior may not work for some mm -hmm. you know the other senior so i really try to understand the individual needs of you know the seniors that i'm talking to mm -hmm. and just sort of find a way to see how i can best help them oh, that's amazing yeah. i think what i heard was it's rebuilding belonging that's what you're doing yeah. um one of the things that we talk about is different strokes for different folks absolutely yeah. right and i think uh moving to my next question but before that i'll give you a little um, request you know, before we started recording, we talked about uh, leadership buy-in and how uh, you're able to do what you do because you've moved from essentially a medical model to a psychosocial model of care. I think uh, if you could use that as a starting point to answer my next question, the challenges and the opportunities in delivering the person-centered mission. Sure. Um, 
So it's very hard. And I think, um, as you know, you mentioned a little bit about the challenges of having to um, sort of convince uh, the system who is based and focused on a medical model that there is so much more than just medical model. Because for me, dance movement therapy is not considered as a really evidence-based approach. Um, so dance movement therapists, to be very honest, are not taken as seriously as psychiatrists are or social workers are um, because it's um, more of an unconventional model. But it focuses on the premise or it's centered in the belief that our mind and body are interconnected. Um, so it's not just important to address the physical issues and the physical um, elements, but it's also important to focus on the holistic well-being. And and I, nothing against the medical model. I mean, I mean, with a lot of serious uh, mental health disorders or physical issues, you know, medicines are very important to manage the symptoms. But I feel like in addition to that, it's so much more important to um, make individuals feel that they have the coping skills they need. Um, and I feel like medical model sort of lacks that. And to give you a very simple example, I am sort of uh, right now um, counseling uh, one of our seniors um, who's going through a hard time, has mental health issues, has a lot of anxiety. Um, and this person has always had medications for the anxiety. But now she's at a point where the medications are not working because the medical model can only serve you to an extent. Um, and she will always come to me and say that, oh, can you prescribe any medication? Can I have some medication that will cure this? But a lot of these issues, a lot of these, a lot of the social issues or psychosocial issues are so much beyond medicine. Um, and what comes in handy with these issues is engagement or how, you know, different ideas and different creative ideas as to how you can support a lot of these psychosocial issues. And it, it aches my heart, but I have to tell this client a lot of times that you have to sit with the emotions, you have to process them. And I will help you find the coping skills. And the coping skills can be can range from based on you know what the client needs. Mm -hmm. But this client is at a point where the medications are not working anymore. And this client was prescribed the highest dose of medications and they're not working. Because mm -hmm. your brain at some point becomes immune to even the medications. So I feel like Yes, medical model. Yes, it's evidence based. It's you know proven to work wonders, but at the same time, we have to look at the overall well being of the individual, um, and especially seniors. And I think I go to a lot of residents' apartments, and they have stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of medications, but it's still not working. So what's lacking, right?
So, and I think there's something to look at there. So if, if, you know, you have stacks and stacks and stacks of medication, but you still have the same amount of anxiety. So, yeah. so what, what, what is it that we're not doing? What is yeah. it that we're not looking at? Yeah. What are some of the needs that we're not meeting? Yeah. And, and that's why I feel it's so important and it's so challenging to convince, um, you know, a lot of these businesses that are based in a medical model that art works. I mean, I have had mm. such a struggle, to be honest, because I, when I was applying for a lot of jobs, um, there are no jobs for, um, I mean, I shouldn't say no, but there are very few jobs for dance movement therapists. Because when you approach somebody and you say, okay, I did my master's, uh, specialized in dance movement therapy, their first question would be, oh, so do you teach dance? Um, so there's so much lack of awareness of what these different um, forms of art are. There are so many different uh, ways to express. Um, and there are so many different interventions. There are so many different programs to look at. But I think medical model really sort of limits you. Um, mm. I mean, it's it it was it was really challenging. It's still a struggle for me. Yeah, it's still a struggle for me to, um, you know, create a place uh, for professionals like myself, and to convince that it's not just dance. I don't come here and dance with residents, but I use dance and movement as a way of expression. Um, and there is enough research to prove that movement and dance has so much physical, mental, social, spiritual benefits to individual. And same goes with all these different forms of art. And, and I feel like, I mean, I, because I've experienced, um, how beneficial it is uh, for my own self. I think it it becomes a bit easier for me to not get affected when you know people are not receptive of these ideas because I know in my heart it works. I have seen it work with um, the groups that I have led using these different interventions. Um, so I think I'm I'm going to continue advocating. I'm going to continue yeah. advocating that there are all these different interventions. There are all these programs that focus on the psychosocial issues and they're as important as somebody's physical well-being um mental health um you know their social isolation and all these issues are i mean they need to receive in enough and i would say more than enough like focus and attention as we do to all these physical issues because your mind and body is interconnected and A lot of the times, it's the mental health issues that in turn sort of result in these physical issues. But uh, there's a lack of awareness about this. There is so much. And and so I I, I get it. I I relate to your struggle as well, that it's so hard to um, advocate for these programs, advocate for these interventions that are not necessarily based in the mainstream medical model. Yeah. Um, but yeah. but I, I do feel like if, you know, if, if you believe in it um, and if, if you believe in the power of it, if you believe in the value of it, um, then it just 
becomes easier to continue to advocate for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what you were saying, that's how I lost my father, right? So for me, it's a very personal journey. Uh, you know, he had the best medical treatment, uh, but he was not, he, he was so isolated and worked out. Uh, he was a lawyer, right? So once they retire, they have nothing to do. Yeah. And I have seen that um, in my own personal life. And then after he passed away, my mom was like, okay, now what should I do? Because she was a caregiver, right? Yeah. And then uh, I think uh, past few months, she's become an artist. Because uh, again, you from Indian background, you'll appreciate grief counseling is not really a thing. I took it for myself because I believe in the power of it. And I so find it can force people because you have to respect people's autonomy. But then through art, um, I see the colors, I see the, and you know, so it's become an open door for creativity. And that's where the vision of our company comes in because I appreciate that a lot of the activity directors or a lot of the program managers, they help people try new things. Let's say, let's do an art, let's do a gratitude. Yeah. But for us, we want you to find something that sticks with you. Mm -hmm. And there is a whole process of making something your thing. Mm -hmm. One is discovering art. And then uh, the second is owning it, right? And that journey that suddenly, like now my mom can just do canvas by herself, right? And she's never held a brush. Right. So when I have seen that transformation, and even my own life, I started Kathak two and a half years ago. It stuck throughout everything for me. I'm not the best Kathak dancer out there, but... It just helps me, it just helps me cope. Poetry writing, I published my own book. So right, so serious leisure, that's something we discovered. It definitely helps with loneliness and both isolation. Mm -hmm. But like where we are in our, in our journey, the evidence base, because the evidence of the, the way literature is, which I'm doing, they'll have one thing, like they'll talk about, let's say, doing this art. And then the next research is about doing something else. So to create an evidence base, there's not enough data to do yeah. like a meta-analysis or a dose prescription for social prescription, right? Yeah. And so then companies like ours, we'll have to keep pivoting the business uh, till the concept makes sense. Yes, there's a staffing shortage. Here is an afternoon evening programming, common sense, but then still the sales is not happening, even though the gap is there. So where do you, the way do we fix our narrative in, in selling, right? So, um, no, no, what you're saying is uh, very well uh, received. Paul? Well, I think it's wonderful. Um, I, I wanted just to insert uh, that if our thanatologist guest were here, she would probably or she might say there's a big difference between chronic sadness and depression. And if a person is suffering from chronic sadness, antidepressants are ineffective. Uh, prescription for chronic sadness and grief lies in new purpose and activities and reconnection, uh, lies in these social questions that we're trying to address rather than in a chemical. Yeah. Chemical, I'm, I'm not against, I'm all for antidepressants. Right. They work for depression, they don't work for sadness mm -hmm. and grief. So do they work for grief? Well, if there's depression, it could be very useful. If it's a heavy sadness, maybe not. Yeah. Um, so I want to know, if you don't mind, what, what advice you would have for us in our venture? Um, I mean, I'm glad that, you know, um, that you told me a little bit about, you know, sort of your journey um, and what sort of motivated you 
um, to start this initiative. Um, I think I would just say if you do believe in, you know, creating these programs and if you do believe in the value and power of it, um, then just keep moving forward. Um, and you know, there will be people who are probably going to say that, oh, we don't think this is going to work, but I'm sure that because I feel like, um, a lot of awareness is happening right now. So for example, at my workplace, um, I'm sure that, I mean, I've worked in previous assisted livings and the first person that they would, um, sort of, um, introduce, uh, the potential residents to was the nurse. Um, because it's a medical model, we provide X, Y, Z care. Um, and you know, we have like X, Y, Z medication system, but at my workplace, um, our executive director would introduce them to me first. Um, and let me sort of talk about, um, how our program stands out from all the other programs, because we focus on using art as expression. Um, and that's something that not a lot of other communities are doing at the moment using different expressive arts um, therapeutically. Um, so I would say that, you know, I think it um, just keep moving forward. Yeah. And um, if you believe in it, I know one day for sure that others mm -hmm. will believe in the power and value of the programs for sure. Yeah. 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 For us, I think the second challenge is one is the content which somewhere we have a buy-in, like, yes, these content, because you said awareness. But the second issue is, because we created the company in the middle of COVID, right? Like, because the idea was, mm -hmm. because before that, to enter a senior community was very hard. There was already certain vendors who are doing things. Yeah. And it was not such a pronounced problem, right? The whole life. So it was there, but it was like something in the background. People knew it's there. Let's not even bother. It's always there. Or that was normalized to, well, that's what happens when you get old, right? It's not true. That's not what happens when yeah. you get old. But it was almost like a culture, normalized uh, ageism of kinds, you know. But but with us, I mean, especially my background being in digital and um, um, and, and online. So I was like, well, this is the 1990s for this 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 kind of business. Let's let's get with digital, and suddenly realizing that there's not even basic Wi-Fi to even have a decent video call. And then, then we are back to drawing board, like, okay, should we do what recorded content? Because it's very different when you do this, the healing of this interaction, let's say you have five people on the call and they leave with that versus you just heard content from me and I'm saying how great drawing a bird is. It's very different. Like there's a, you know, so for us, it is this, how do you not dilute what you have to offer? Because we've tested it and it works. And then with every, the thing is seniors are not one age group, right? They're buckets of it. Yeah. Their digital literacies are different. Yeah. Their expectation of life at that point where they are is different. So we are actually literally back to the drawing board saying which seniors, because the, we've noticed the ones who are congregated are not digital and the ones who are digital are so spread out that the marketing cost as a business is insanely prohibitive you know yeah, yeah so so we don't know like we don't know what the answer lies uh we're figuring <laughs> the answer especially given that we want to continue with the digital quest and it's only a matter of three to five years where all senior homes will have a decent wi-fi 
by because when the next generation of seniors come, they're not going to accept that the Wi-Fi doesn't work. They're, you know, it's a digitally savvy seniors who are going to start moving in. Yeah. So I think we will see the break-even point in that time. So we know that okay, there's that coming up, but in between that, we need to balance every quarter as a business and go about yeah. you know, paying paying salaries or whatever. So yeah. yeah. It yeah. is, it does, it does sound quite challenging. And mm -hmm. I agree with the digital part because um, at my workplace, we have, I would say 50% that's very tech savvy. And then we have the other 50% who just has such a hard time and they struggle with technology. Uh, but I think it is a lot of the content um, especially in COVID and also post-COVID that we have, is digital. Exactly. Um, and especially, you know, because activity professionals are only there for a certain amount of day, certain hours during the day. It's like exactly. 9 to 5 and then we go home. But then there is, a, a, you know, quite a number of residents who don't know what to do from after dinner until bedtime and there is nobody there to really do any activities or engage them um and i feel like that sort of gap can definitely be filled by offering digital content um and but i i i, I totally understand your point you know where wi-fi or internet is is the basic um, yeah, well, because if we are doing a video call and if it's cutting, right, if it's cutting, you will perceive our company as poor quality, though it's it's not us, it's it's your internet that's yeah, cutting. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you don't do the engagement piece, well, then it's like you're throwing another content, like then, I mean, even other companies, because we don't, because we are still in somewhat restrictions, we don't have access to hi-fi studios to record high quality right. like we can compete with nat geo or history channel we can't we just can't we're not there right that's not our business model either we have uh so for us it's become like this thing that everybody agrees this is the gap we found the right gap the medium has become and that's where we need to go what is the right medium because if you want let's say aggregated seniors who are living in this housing community and their age groups are also older like 85 and above they're five to 15% of them have emails. So we know those numbers through talking to so many people. But I think this is the question we internally are asking ourselves. And of course there are answers. If you wanna solve a problem, a, a, we are not married to our solution because we know that the digital piece is just a method of delivering. The real meat is the arty stuff that you talk about, right? right, right. And we've got the best of the artists doing things with you, which you will enjoy. And also as a business to keep lean, all our instructors are all over Canada and the US, right? So I can't even get my teachers in one room because one is on one coast of the world and one is on the other coast of it. And, and because it's digital, they can you know, deliver information anytime. So we are also sort of toying with the idea of maybe we record stuff and give recorded links. But again, with the link, the issue is if you have bad Wi-Fi even a link will not work because to continuously stream something from a, even a link that. So then it comes down to, okay, do you put it in a pen drive and deliver? Uh, and then how many pen drives will people copy that content, right? Because you, you give one pen drive and it can be passed along. 
And as a business, then that's not business really. So <laughs> then that's just charity. And, well, plus, and so, plus our, our model is a cohort-based model for good reasons. Right. We have, good, we have good reasons for saying no, live and cohort-based because that builds community. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah. yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. But, but that said, um, you validated so much of what we've been thinking and yeah. given me other things to think about too. <laughs> yeah, and and our, and our listeners, if you have ideas for us, like please email us. We are happy to discuss because that's where that's where the power of startups lies. You know, co-designing solutions. Yeah, um, absolutely, absolutely. And I I I I do agree. I, I mean, it's very important when the programs are live um, because I think that also really helps residents to connect well um, so but I, I mean definitely I mean having a live program comes with its own Internet. challenges having <laughs> good wi-fi the basics really having good wi-fi on both the ends and yeah um, yeah yeah, we interviewed another activity director and he told us, like engagement director like you, and he said, you know what, you want to do digital? Guess what? We have one person who is in charge of charging their devices because many of them do not remember to charge their devices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I was like, okay, that's humbling. And then you sort of <laughs> start wondering, okay, where do you start? So of course we, we have enough information. We've not made a decision on where to pivot. Um, and by the time this podcast will be released, I, mean, I guess we would have had more uh, decisions made, but it's fun to listen to what you say because it's validating and sometimes it's frustrating that, okay, you're in the right space, but now you need to, you need to really, I guess we need to get so deeper to really crack the code because it's like almost like you're touching, you're touching the center, but you're off like a little off, Yeah. Okay. you know, it's something like that. <laughs> And Ruta, this was such a brilliant podcast. So if people want to find and reach out to you, how can they do that? Um, they can um, look me up on LinkedIn um, by my name, um, or they can even uh, reach out to me via email. Uh, my email is rutap95 at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to um, answer any questions or anything more you would like to know about, um, you know, expressive arts or anything for that matter. Um, but it was really great to be on this podcast um, and be able to talk about this population, which is so near and dear to my heart. Um, so thank you so much for inviting me on this podcast. It was great to have this conversation with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.